Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Think Orange podcast. A podcast with ideas and conversations to help you influence the next generation. Well, g'day, everyone. Welcome to the Think Orange podcast. My name is Dave, your host, coming to you from the Think Orange bunker, as always. And you know what? I cannot believe that it is February already. I mean, this year is going just so quick. And as somebody who is in full-time ministry, I know that February can be a frustrating kind of month because we're only two months into the new year, yet many of us are already starting to see our goals slip away because of things that we just can't plan for. Change is a constant part of ministry. There are always things in the church world that come up that you can't really plan for. And in fact, our Orange family is dealing with one of those things right now. You see, on today's episode, we had always planned to run an interview that we did at Orange Conference with Craig Jatella. But the day after Christmas 2018, Craig passed away, and we are still struggling to deal with this change. But because Craig was such an advocate for church family ministry and helping lead people through change, we decided we wanted to run this final interview that we did with him where he talks about this very topic. Now, what I would normally do here is talk about our sponsor for today's episode, but today I want to let you know about the Craig Jatella Memorial Fund that will start a retreat center for pastors. So I want to invite all of you who have been impacted by Craig, by his work, by his books, by his leadership talks to donate to this cause by visiting whowillyouempower.com. That's whowillyouempower.com. Now, before we play the interview with Craig, we're going to hear a very special message from Reggie Joyner, who leads our Orange family and is a close friend to Craig and Mary Jatella. I have uh, mixed emotions as I introduce this podcast. It it features Craig Jutella. Some of you may know that Craig was featured often at Orange Conference, and um, he was a champion for next-gen pastors all over the country. But less than a month ago, Craig was skiing with his wife, Mary, and had a heart attack and passed away. And uh, the last conversation I had with Craig was to discuss what he would be speaking about at Orange Conference in 2019. Uh, Craig was, was a unique and amazing leader. I've had countless conversations with Craig about ministry, about life, about change. Uh, some of my favorite moments have been late at night at the end of a conference day or a video shoot when the microphones and cameras were turned off and we were hanging out at a restaurant in the lobby or talking about the personal stuff uh, and what really matters. I think Craig was a gift to all of us who've ever attempted to lead ministry, and the podcast you're about to hear was already scheduled to post this week. It's about leading change, something Craig did very well. As leaders, uh, we will forever be grateful for his investment in shaping how so many of us do ministry. Hey, today we are talking about change, and because we're in the Think Orange bunker and we're talking about change, I wanted to change things up. So instead of Ashley as my co-host for this, we're actually joined by the one and only Holly Crawshaw. Holly, how are you? Dave, I'm really excited to be here. I'm not um, a podcast host by vocation, so I might be a little unconventional. Neither am I. But (laughs) Dave, (laughs) but it's a very avid hobby. That's good. That you're fantastic at. Well, I try. I try. But we are changing things up a little bit. And so to talk about change, we have Craig Jutella. Did I say that right? Absolutely. You said it was like Nutella. Nutella with a J. I just hit the U a little bit more. Uh, (laughs) Who doesn't? Craig, it's great to have you here in the Think Orange Bunker. This is your first time in the bunker. What do you think so far? 
Uh, you know what? I uh, it's feeling really zesty in here. Zesty. I'm excited about it. Yeah, okay. I like that. Yeah, zesty. I like the vibe. I like what's going on. Zesty, okay. like somebody just opened up a jar of Vegemite. A Vegemite? Zesty? No, that would be musty. <laughs> so that's uh, no. Yeah. Wow, but, that took uh, a change. Speaking yeah. speaking of change, are we um, done now? Yes. We, yeah, we're just I'm about done. Yeah. Okay. Um, Craig, for people who don't know you, give us a little bit of a thumbnail about who you are, what you do, and why we're talking about change with you. Yeah. So. Um, for uh, 13 years, I was the children's pastor at Saddleback Church, yep. Lake Forest. Yep. So um, uh, changing there was kind of like even before we uh, started here, you know, if you, if you move uh, something small, like yeah. a speedboat, 50 yeah. people, it's a little easier to change, yeah. uh, make change. But when you're driving something a little larger like the Titanic yeah. <laughs> uh, with a lot of people, it uh, requires uh, systems and, and leadership. Yeah. So uh, did that uh, 13 years, and then the last 10 years, just uh, authoring, writing, speaking, running uh, Empowered Living, uh, which is our company. And then most recently, just four months ago, went back into a church after not being wow. in a church for 10 years. Yeah, so uh, family and teaching pastor at Venture yep. Christian Church in San Jose with Chip Ingram. That's cool. Yeah. Hey, so we're talking about change. Now, I, I changed uh, professions about 10 years ago, went from the secular uh, media world into the church world, which was a big change. One of the interesting things I noticed was, I don't know, in church world, people seem resistant more resistant to change than in the secular world. That's what I've found anyway. Would you, would you agree? And well, why do you think that is, if you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not super sure about the secular world. I, I just, I think people, a lot of people say, oh, I, you know, I love change. You know, if you're, if you consider yourself a creative or innovator, you oh, I love change. Yeah. And everybody loves change unless it's happening to them. Yeah. Right. Then all of a sudden we have a problem, right? Yeah. So basically, you know, leading change requires uh, a lot of emotional awareness yeah. and a plan. Yeah. Uh, so within the church, there are a lot of folks that are uh, set in, in their ways, but I, I think um, <laughs> you find that at other places as well. And so I know when change starts to happen to me, if somebody institutes change that affects me and my particular area of church, yeah. it can be frustrating. Yeah. Uh, so because sometimes I think it may be the wrong way, but yeah. you gotta you gotta get on board. So the so the people who are listening to this podcast who are leaders, for example, and they know maybe this is a timely podcast for them because they're they're thinking through. I've got a change coming. I've got to communicate to th that to my staff. What tips would you have for them? Well, usually when you come off, uh, for example, you go to a conference, people get excited, they go back home, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Here's the 37 things I learned. We're starting them tomorrow, and that is everything wrong with leading change. Yeah. So I tell people when they come out of a conference, right, or something they just it really wowed them, go home, everybody's expecting you to come and vision vomit on them. Just put all your stuff away, lock it up, and don't do anything. Mm. And then that creates a curiosity. Oh, why didn't they come back? Excite. So it kind of leads them into asking what, what what's wrong with you? Yeah. Right. That kind of thing. So uh, it's one of those where you kind of play, uh, play it down a little bit. Wow. Uh, but when it comes to change, I think most people just, they don't want to do it because uh, it comes to, you can't or you won't. Mm -hmm. So I think some people just don't know the process, yeah. uh, what to put first and others are just afraid. So, Craig, tell me this. You've led leaders before, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're leading leaders, leaders always have their own ideas. Yes. And if leaders are anything like me, we love our own ideas. <laughs> and so <laughs> True that. how do you teach your leaders which ideas are ideas that should be implemented and which ideas are maybe some that should just be sat on or thought about or maybe down the road? Right. 
Um, people support what they help create. And so yeah, I believe good. that in order to lead leaders, you have to get them on board. So although you may have the vision, you have to get them on board early in the process so that mm -hmm. they can feel a part of it. Right, that's good. Uh, and you're not doing it to coddle them. It's a true part of the process. Mm. So if you want to lead followers, uh, that's pretty easy and you won't get much done. Uh, <laughs> but leading leaders uh, is very difficult, but you'll get a lot done. And yeah. uh, that's kind of the, the general premise is you just want to get uh, folks on board who can support the vision. Uh, and I, I wouldn't want anybody that in some way didn't disagree. I would want a little disagreement. Yeah. Uh, right. I feel like if everybody's telling me yes, then that's probably something wrong right there with yeah, who yeah. I'm trying to lead. Right. Yeah. So, so you talked about vision mm -hmm. and getting people, people support what they help create. So obviously to, to get them on board, we need to cast vision. Yeah. What, what's the most important elements about casting vision, especially when it comes to something that's going to change somebody's uh, maybe day-to-day, -day, maybe what they're doing on a nine-to-five basis? What, what's the important part of vision? How important is vision and, and what's the best way to do it? So for me, I mean, I would, you know, to put it simply, I would say staying on the right path. And yep. for me, path is passion, attitude, teamwork, and honor. Hang on, stop, 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 stop. Yeah, stop. yeah. I want you to go through that again. Yeah, so passion. So I can write this down. And yeah. so that the people listening can write this down. You know down. you're on the right path with if you have your passion yeah. as a leader. Yeah. Uh, the attitude is right among yourself and your team. Yeah. Uh, which takes the next one. The T is teamwork. You want everybody, uh, all of us are smarter than one of us. Yeah. Uh, and honor. So that even though you have disagreement, you honor the person's opinion. You have to come curiously. I think a lot of leaders come with a predetermined or preset mindset about what they want. Yeah. So while that may be true in the end result, we want to start a new program, whatever it may be. In order to do that, okay, we kind of put our end result and then work backward. What do we need to do? So you have to begin to cast some vision. Now, yeah. what ends up happening is you have, like my wife and I, she, she describes... Uh, our marriage relationship with our personalities like a kite and a string. So a kite uh, is like up in the wind and flying around yeah. and uh, now, Craig, it's wonderful. Would that be you in this analogy? So to be fair, well, uh, <laughs> I have been characterized that way. Uh, and so I think she has a great analogy in that it's great. Uh, the string doesn't get a lot of credit, but I'll tell you what, if there is no string, there is no kite, right? Right. And so the string is there. And here's the interesting thing between the kite and the string, there's tension. That's what allows the kite to fly. So, so is this one your of the team, wife's idea? Can I quote her? Uh, absolutely. She is a genius. This, yeah. is, this is incredible. She really, and you know what? She seriously, my wife, Mary, she, uh, valedictorian. Right. Seriously, as in high school, never she's never got a B. Then she was magna cum laude, summa cum laude, and I graduated 1.97 GPA out of high school. I was like, Lordy, please help me. Uh, <laughs> that was me. That I don't was know what uh, those Greek words mean. Yeah, I know. And so <laughs> she's probably the one. I she's probably the one that should be sitting here. Um, but the idea of of building that passion, that energy, yeah, and it involves risk. And I think sometimes leaders don't. It's, and I used to be this way. If your identity is so tied into what you are leading, then the mm. cause or thought that if it failed is difficult for you because then it is equal to your failure. Mm. So one of the key underlying ingredients to leading change is you can't have your identity wrapped in to what you are doing. Right. You're independent of that, right? Yeah. And I used to lead that way. And so when it would get attacked, if we were doing a program, yeah. I, I, I felt attacked. Yeah. 
And, you know, two years of counseling helps you remove a little bit of that. So my baggage, I don't have to check a lot of emotional baggage. I have carry on emotional baggage, but I don't have to check a lot anymore. And it's one of those where you have to remove the identity and the risk factor is high. You have to risk Mm. and failure could be a part of it. So Craig, let's go back. You said, uh, you, you mentioned two years of counseling. If you could say maybe one to two things that you learned about dealing with people who push back on your ideas or, or your, your need for change or your idea about change. Like what would you say to a leader who was dealing with a lot of pushback or a lot of turmoil on their team as a result of their desire for change? Hmm. Uh, I would, you know, I think language, body posture and emotional awareness. Um, but I would say, I understand how you feel that way. We've all felt as leaders trying to lead something and it not work out. Yeah. Uh, so in that case, if it doesn't work out, instead of calling it failure, call it an experiment. Hey, we did an experiment and experiments by nature, some of them are going to fail. So you just call it that and then lean in, you know, help them to, uh, get back up. You know, it's one of those where, you know, you need to take a new grip with your tired hands, as scripture says, and yeah. keep moving forward. And that's where it really gets difficult because sometimes leading change is two steps forward, three steps back. And there are times in my life I would call that progress. <laughs> it doesn't right. really seem that way, but the idea of being able to get back up again yeah. and keep moving forward. And if you run into a dead end, move around. Mm. Uh, if God's called you through that, I think God's more interested in our character uh, than our comfort sometimes. And mm. so uh, it's not going to be easy. Leading change, significant change is not easy. Uh, another part of it's, you know, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's other things at work trying to derail where we're going yeah. or what we're trying to do. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, emotional and spiritual bandwidth that goes into that. But I, to your question, I would just you know, lean in. And when you get uh, pushback, there's some people, my my favorite line is just outlast your critics. If people don't want to get on the bus, you know, sometimes the bus is moving and you leave people (laughs) and sometimes it it doesn't hurt to pull over and open the door and ask anybody if they want to get out. Occasionally you have to toss somebody out (laughs) and, and not, you know, in 25 years plus of ministry, I mean, I haven't had to toss too many folks, but uh, you know, when it comes to volunteers, because they're a part of leading change, I mm-hmm. say treat your volunteers like you do your paid staff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and when I volunteer, I get treated like paid staff at my wife's school or anywhere else. So, so one more question about yeah. change. Um, if you are a leader and you do want to institute change, but maybe you're a new leader in mm-hmm. the area that you're leading, is there is there a time frame you should wait? Should you come out like? just guns a-blazing and change, or is there like some sort of respecting the history and waiting around, or, or what do you think is like a, a decent time frame hmm. to begin instituting change? Yeah, time frame is so difficult. I think the two models of change is, one, you come in and you just, you rip everything up and, you know, you start brand new and you upset a lot of people, but everybody's mad for two months and then you move on. That's not a model I favor. Um, I would prefer to lead through relational equity. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some people that just aren't going to like you. Just, I mean, there's nothing. Yep. It just, hey, we don't like you. Um, (laughs) And and I I get that. I understand that. Uh, And that that's. Well, I don't, Craig. I don't like. I know. When that happens, no, you like me. Neither do I. Yeah, I know. you're talking to two threes on the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, yes. we need to be liked. Absolutely. I know. I um, we can have a session after. Yeah. <laughs> I have my therapist on speed dial, uh, do a FaceTime or a Zoom. Yeah. Uh, no, so you know it's it's very uh, you know like I say the relational equity and it's 
I, I use Nehemiah as a model of how right. he led change. And as he was a cupbearer to the king, uh, he most trusted position, when he heard the news about the walls of Jerusalem, right? So now he's like, oh, God is calling me. He gets the call to, to do this. But time, he hears the news and he shows up in front of the king to make some asks. Mm. Right. was four months. So he took four months to ponder, Scripture says, what he heard. Uh, his friends told him what had happened. He prayed. He sought God. And so there's a lot of walking around, looking what needs to be changed. Once you have that uh, vision or direction, okay, I'm start to go. And then that involves risk. And you know, one of the next things that Nehemiah does after he stakes this four months you know, pondering is he stands in front of the king and chooses to be sad. And, uh, <laughs> and the king's like, why are you sad? Like, that's I've never exactly, seen you sad before. That's exactly <laughs> what he says. And most people don't realize that uh, as the cupbearer is in a trusted position, right. and he, of all people, would have known that being sad in front of the king meant mm -hmm. death. Right. You mm. could be killed for that. It was a punishable offense. So he chose to look that way to solicit a response. The king did, and that's based on relational equity, mm -hmm. right? I don't think he could have done that, you know, first month yeah, cupbearer, yeah. yeah. right? You're dead. Bring in the next guy. Right, yeah. this guy's um, sad. Bye. Right, so he leans in, and he says, what's wrong? So he tells him, right? So he had emotional connection. And the other thing, I had a meeting this last week, and I came with some passion to it because there's some change that involves other peers in ministry. And they said, hey, can we just leave emotion at the door? I said, absolutely not. Wow. Because I think mm. we shy away from that. Let's just be very rational. Mm. And to me, that's very cold. Uh, you got to have passion. You got to mm. have some fuel in the tank, right? A little yeah. spunk in your trunk. And so <laughs> ants in your pants make you dance, whatever. Uh, I feel like I might have some spunk. Yeah. So, and it's, it's learning to understand uh, what is emotional dysregulation yeah, yeah. and what is mm. a healthy emotion. Yeah. And so staying on the path with the right passion and the attitude that keeps that in check. Yeah. So you want to sell a vision. You can't sell vision just on paper or, hey, we're going to do these three things. That just doesn't float my boat. This is yeah. a very rational plan. Nobody will buy into that. Right. Yeah. Long term, you know, at least. Catch yourself on fire and uh, mm. other people, That's if good. they don't get caught on fire, they'll at least come to watch you burn. <laughs> <laughs> I right? love it. Love it. Hey, um, one of the one of the, I think one of the big changes in life is when we change career or change work. You know, uh, go, go to a new company or or you know, in ministry terms, go to a new church. I'm interested in this aspect of your story. You, so you came from Saddleback, right. huge church, great systems, very successful in in the strategy that they have. And then you you take a decade off, and then you go back into church into what I assume is a smaller church. How are you managing that change? Because I know, uh, I know people who would walk into that new role, that that new organization, and go, "Hey, we need to change this, 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 and this," because I've seen it done successfully. But I don't hear you saying that. So, no. what advice would you give? Uh, so, uh, it's two different churches. You know, uh, ventures uh, four or five thousand. And so smaller by standard. But yeah. still a very large church. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but smaller by comparison. Sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think if you were to come in and say, I'm going to put this system here, it's not easily transferred yeah. because you're dealing with different levels of maturity. You're dealing with different people. It comes down to, to people. Mm. And so getting to know the people, finding out where they are spiritually, finding out where they are emotionally. So it's been uh, wonderful, but I've been like, kind of like Nehemiah, I have 
heard the news, so to yeah. speak, and I'm yeah. uh, kind of in this process where I'm waiting, yeah. and I have shown up to get a couple things that I need to keep moving. Yeah. But really, it's about you know getting some alignment, getting some momentum. Yeah. But it's hard because you're selling vision, and when you sell vision, it's like that bus. Some people go, I just don't want to be on that. Yeah. And I can remember all the way back to Saddleback. We literally stopped a program that everybody around this table would know about. We just stopped the program. It wasn't because it was a bad program. Is it because it didn't fit? It didn't yeah. align with the model that Saddleback had. Yeah. So when we stopped that, I had, I call it a, a meeting, um, but uh, it was supposed to be with one lady. Five showed up. They weren't That's happy. Do. Yeah. No. They never go anywhere alone. I, I was uh, afraid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so we sat down at the table, and they were leaders of this ministry, and I uh, tried to let them know the ministry's yeah. gone to be with Jesus mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> was not be coming back. At the end of the meeting, and I took a lot of shots uh, that day, one lady, and this is true, uh, she said to me, I'm going to pray for evil to happen to you and your family. Wow. No. Yeah. Yeah, she said that. So uh, leading change, that's probably the worst comment I've ever got. I got a wow. lot of bad looks. I had people that said they were going to go to another church. One of the principles of change, however, that I think creatives or innovators miss is we, we often subscribe to this comment. Uh, we would rather ask for forgiveness than permission. And I know nobody knows what that means here, and I still have trouble <laughs> figuring that out. Mm. That being said, that being said, uh, there is an important value about having your boss on board right. with the change. Yeah. So that when I say this program X is no longer happening, and they say, because they'll threaten you sometimes, I'm going to write a letter to the senior pastor or to whoever. And you can say, that's fantastic. I just talked to the senior pastor, and they're on board with it. So now you have backup. And Nehemiah actually did that as well. He asked before he left the king for a letter of safe passage Mm -hmm. in case he was attacked. He knew. So he anticipated uh, possible outcomes before. And that's another key aspect of change, is anticipate uh, difficulty. And then try to remedy that. Bef- on the Before. front end. Yeah, yeah, on the front end. Now, you can't do that all the time, but yeah. there's probably 75% you can take care of. I think this podcast was helpful just for what you just said about <laughs> that whole us forgiveness, not permission thing, because I've that's always rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. Because that doesn't work in any area of my life. <laughs> it sounds really good, though, right? It sounds good. You're like, oh, my so gosh. And I hear people in ministry say it all the time, yeah. and I'm always scratching my head going, what am I missing? It's because if I tried that in my marriage, oh, my gosh. Yeah, right, <laughs> like, yes, right. No, it's, yeah. it's over. Well, if you're not a Nehemiah, who is a very strong personality, True. Right. who seemed to really just not care about anything other than his mission, what he thought God wanted him to do, if you're a people pleaser, not that I am, no. Dave, at all, but... For the, for the ministry leader listening right now who needs to remove that program, who needs to ask this volunteer to go somewhere else, who needs to move staff around or, or, or do something that might rub someone the wrong way, that might be a ask permission situation that they just need to, to take charge in, what would be something that you would say to them to encourage them? What's at, what's at risk if they yeah. don't move? Mm. Well, so here's what I would say. Do you want a migraine for a week or a headache every day? <laughs> And I would rather have a migraine for a week. Yeah, that's good. Because a headache Mm. every day you wake up and you've got this low-grade migraine and it's just not going away. It's not changing it. 
because you may be afraid. Mm -hmm. And so for the person that's afraid to risk, I say, you know what? Get up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remove your identity from what you want to change and lean in. If God has told you uh, where God guides, God's going to provide. And so lean in and do it. Uh, We're not out to hurt anybody. And change is coming, hopefully, out of a pure heart. It's not coming out of what can we do to upset people and get them to leave or right. whatever. Yeah. I think the the factor, too, is that if you lead, and I think there's enough of this that's seen in the church, that when you lead change and it is ineffective, you have the potential to have God call you to another ministry. And in the secular world, we call that being fired. Yeah. Uh, we don't use that language within the church. Um, God has called us to another ministry. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think there's some fear of that. And, mm. you know, I, I was reading you know, last week that it is for freedom that Christ came to set us free. Mm. And I think we operate in a box sometimes of fear. I, I've been doing this for a long time, and there's still some things I'm like, oh, boy. We're going to do it, but this is going to be rough. I need to put the Kevlar on. Yeah. You know, I'm going to get some verbal shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. you just, you know, what, to lead change, what you really need is a thick skin and a sensitive heart. Mm. Not a calloused skin, a right. thick That's skin. Good. You need to be able to absorb and a sensitive heart. Because if you put yourself in their shoes, uh, you're uh, messing with their world. Yeah. And that that can be frustrating. And I think coming alongside them, you know, like the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, I think it, the term is parakaleo, one called alongside to help. That's really what you're about when you're leading change. You're mm. causing and coming alongside. Now, at the same time, you have to know when, hey, we're done here and the rest of the boat is moving. And so here we go. Mm, that's good. Hey, I would like to, in the context of this podcast and this topic, change topics a little bit. I see what you did there, Dave. Or at least change the context. Because change about change. Change about change. I don't like change. I'm going to have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Refuse. Well, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and I'm going to try and do this with passion, attitude, teamwork, and honor. Hey, one of the yes. biggest changes in life is when we get married. One of the biggest changes in our marriage is when we have kids. And as you're saying all this stuff, I'm putting this through the, the filter of, of me as a dad. And especially from, you know, you were talking about how, how the passion, the attitude, the emotion involved uh, plays a big role. Um, how, how do you deal with change in your family? Is it the same as you would deal with it at a church? I'm talking about, I want to just start talking about the family context of change now. Yeah. So, uh, no. <laughs> it's a little different yeah. because I think within the family, there is a, um, you're dealing with a lot of transition quick, yeah. right? And, and for example, my, you know, my kids, all my kids are older now. In fact, this is the window where they're, they're all 20 years old right now between March 6th and May 6th. We have twin boys, May 6th, their birthday and uh, our daughter, March. And um, uh, we adopted her from mm-hmm. Kazakhstan when she was five. And so we have three 20-year-olds. What yeah. a treat. Uh, wow. That is. Uh, so yeah, you're I need talking, prayer. Dave has three girls and I have three girls. Wow. So two boys, three, uh, one girl, and but they're all like firstborn. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Oh. So yeah, it's rough. So what was the question again? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> so the transition, you're leading this change. My daughter, you know, for example, I can remember she was in high school. She want, our, our rule, it's not biblical. It's just what we did. It's You could play one sport at a time. So you play basketball and then if you want to stop basketball, then you can start playing softball and then lacrosse. But you can't like do this and then do piano, violin, swimming, all the things, right? Kind of a balanced approach. So I remember her, she was 15 at the time and she's like, well, that's not fair. 
I understand that. It probably isn't fair. Now, here's the thing. As a parent, I told her, hun, uh, mom and I are doing the best we can mm. uh, at, at raising a 15-year-old daughter. Um, I, I have never had a 16-year-old daughter. So I don't know what that's like. We're doing the best we can with what we got. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I didn't true. get practice kids. If I was God, I would give everybody practice kids. That is yeah, so yeah. true. Right? Because you'd mess them. It's like waffles. When you make a <laughs> waffle, the, mess, the first one's always messed up. Totally. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, right? Yeah. Then they're great. That's good. They're, if we could just have some waffle kids. <laughs> Mess them up. That's a right, and then God would go. Okay, you got it. Yeah. Now you can. Now you have kids. Oh, right. Like you see what I'm saying? Idea, yeah. Waffle In fact, kids. yeah. I'm going to write a book, Waffle Kids. Uh, I literally just, I just wrote it down to yeah. mine. <laughs> well, speaking of books, you are working on a book right now. Yes. It's called Seven Habits of Emotionally Healthy Parents. Yes. Out of those seven habits, could you talk about one or two with us uh, yeah. just to wrap up? Of course. Um, one would be practice the habit of curiosity. Okay. And when I say that, it's a lot of times uh, parents, I believe in the model of parenting where we start because we're in control mm -hmm. and we are, I mean, they don't, when they're babies, they don't get fed unless we feed them. They don't get changed unless we change them. They can't move around unless we move them. Sometimes uh, parents will get caught in control all mm -hmm. the way through preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school, into college. And that is difficult yeah. when the parent, the kids are growing, but the parents aren't. So I say, remain curious, mm -hmm. be open to the possibility that your way is not always the right way. Mm. And when your kids challenge you, you can be wrong as a parent. It's okay if your sixth mm. grader brings up a point. What I say is don't, don't get dysregulated. If they, if they bring up something that is a button for you, you remain neutral in your response. That doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. Uh, it just means that you are accepting what they're saying yeah. and saying, hey, I understand how you could feel that way. You're not validating uh, like their opinion, but you're validating their experience. And I think that allows for uh, future communication. So mm. as kids get in middle school and high school, when they're trying to remove themselves or move away to gain their independence and the parent is chasing, it creates friction for them. And so the idea of just remaining curious, oh, I, I, I understand how you could uh, you know, feel that way yeah. about that. And one of the things that kind of the premise of the seven habits of emotionally healthy parents is, you know, I fly a lot. I love uh, Southwest just because <laughs> two they, free check bags, Craig. I know. And I told you, I so have a nice. lot of emotional baggage. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> no, they, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they just, they, it feels like they don't take, I wish, I wish Southwest could be like a church. Like they, you know what I mean? Like you, they just accept you. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're just like, they get, and then when they do their little talk, uh, and this is where I got the idea of seven habits of emotionally healthy parents. They talk about the oxygen masks, right? And mm -hmm. normally I have my headphones in, but I like to listen to Southwest because they make stuff up. They freelance it a little bit. They stick to the script, but they'll say things. And so I, I love what they say. They said, you know, if we expect unexpected turbulence or whatever, we, you know, the oxygen masks will fall from the screen. Uh, please put your oxygen mask on first, right? We've all heard this. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, help your child. Yeah. And then Southwest kind of does different versions of that. If there's, uh, you know, put your own mask on first and if there's somebody acting like a child, then you can have, and I, <laughs> my favorite is if you're a mm -hmm. parent today and you're traveling with kids, uh, please take a moment now to decide who has more potential. <laughs> 
and then help them first, which I think is fair. And so we have our kids Absolutely. ranked, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Oxygen mask uh, too. And but then, the, uh, yeah. The whole right. point of that is you have to have your oxygen mask on first. So mom, mm. dad, wow. take care of your own oxygen mask first, then help your kids. If we are emotionally healthy as parents, wow. we have a much greater chance of producing uh, emotionally healthy children. We have a tendency to parent the way we were parented. And even if we think we were parented well, we have inherited some of those things yeah. uh, subconsciously that we're passing on to our kids. All, all, we, all we try, depending on what our upbringing was, we try to do the opposite, right? Right. If right. you feel like you were parented poorly, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to do this because my parents did that. Yeah. Right. You, you can definitely uh, swing that way. Like, I, I mean, I said, I mean, I thought I was parented okay. Yeah. I mean, not like great or whatever, but I was like, yeah, it was fine. Yeah, um, yeah. And I look at my kids and I, there were a lot of times where I was like, hey, this is my way or the highway. This is the way. Yeah. And I just, uh, you know, you don't want to look back with regret. You want to look back so that it gives you a healthy perspective on the future. I like that. So. I like that. Yeah, healthy parents leads to healthy kids who are able to adapt to change. See what I did there? I see. I, I, land, I was following you. I circled, where you're powerful. Going. I circled powerful. back and I so landed that Southwest plane. Oh, oh, did it again. Does you Southwest did. Southwest wow. Australia, wow. which is where Dave's from? No, they don't. They don't. <laughs> I think they're starting Hawaii, though, at the end of this year. All so right, Craig. Wow. Yeah. Well, this podcast has been proudly brought to you by Southwest. We'll be <laughs> yeah, expecting right. some frequent fly miles in the mail. No, but Craig, when should your book, um, Seven Habits of Emotionally Healthy Parents, when can we expect that? Uh, spring next year. Okay. Yeah. So maybe Orange Orange Conference. We're yeah. at Orange Conference right now. Did we say that? We didn't say that, but we are. So we're, and when you say next year, it is now 2018. So if you're That's listening right. to this podcast in the future. Spring 2019. You can find it wherever you buy and, books from in the can, future. And you can Google my children. This is Holly Crawshaw and see. <laughs> if they if turned I, out okay. If, they, if, they turned, if I gave them the oxygen mask or not. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, Craig, thank you so much for your time. We're so glad that you were able to come into the bunker. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Craig. You know, even from just that short interview, it's so easy to hear how passionate Craig was about next generation leaders and family ministry. That interview was actually the only time that I had the opportunity to meet Craig, but I can tell you that he left a big mark on my life. Some of the wisdom that he shared through that interview and just his overall passion and energy for life was so contagious that I remember it distinctly. Even after that interview, he talked for a few minutes with me about the love that he has for his family and his church, and I know he will be missed. Well, now we're going to hear from a colleague of Craig's, Mr. Kerry Newhoff, who's going to continue this conversation about leading through change. Create discontent out of a couple of things. So how do you create discontent? In a good way. You can create discontent in a bad way. You can blow up a meeting fast. You can go in angry one day and basically destroy your church. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a discontent from God. And I mean, that, that was how the story of Israel coming out of slavery got birthed, right? That God heard their cries and said, this should not be. And so he called a leader, Moses, and said, we're gonna lead these people out of slavery and into a promised land. I mean, out of discontent, great things get birthed and terrible things get birthed. I wanna be on the great things side of that. So create discontent out of the potential of your mission. Your mission has a potential, right? It does. Your mission can do something. You know, even if your mission is, uh, ours is to create a church that unchurched people love to attend and to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Well, 
if your mission has potential, um, that's great. But we have like over 200,000 unchurched people in central Ontario near us. And we have an attendance of about 800 guests and a couple hundred adults on a Sunday morning. So we're, we're reaching one two hundredth of the potential of our congregation. That's not a bad thing. That can be a good thing. You can point to the number of unchurched people in your community. You can point to missing demographics in your community to say, it's great that we got all these 40-year-olds, but where are the 20-year-olds? Where are the 30-year-olds? How can we reach them? So you can look at the potential of your mission. You can look at the progress of your mission. How well have we done? How well have we done? And what is left to do? What have we not exhausted? You know, this is not something we started. It's something God started. What is the potential of the kingdom of God? What is the potential of what we read about in the Bible in our time? Man, there's an awful lot. And you can measure the progress of your mission against the progress of the mission. So that's something else you can do to create discontent in a healthy way. Uh, Letter C, Um, you can create discontent out of the gap in your mission between what is and what could be. I think that's where it comes from, from what is to what could be. And that's what change is. Change bridges the gap between what is and what could be. And I imagine as leaders, you're probably dreamers. You imagine things for your church. You can see a better future. And your responsibility is to help lead people into that better future. So those are healthy ways to create discontent. Um, Letter D is the urgency of your mission. The urgency of your mission. I think about that every time I get on an airplane um, because, as you know, they do the safety demonstration. Does anybody listen to the safety demonstration? Nobody. Why? Because you probably don't think you're going to crash unless you're a really nervous flyer. You just like you're trying to get your last email done before they have to shut off your devices or, you know, you're trying to get see if there's an empty seat you can move to or get your cargo stowed right. And, you know, you're not focused on, on the safety procedures because there's no urgency. But if the seatbelt sign comes on and the captain's voice comes over the system and he says, we may have to make an emergency landing, all of a sudden, all that information that was irrelevant becomes relevant. True? Why? Because the urgency just went up. It's like I live an hour north of Toronto. Toronto has significant traffic, big traffic issues. You have to be strategic in getting through the city or otherwise you're just going to sit there for an hour or two, much like Atlanta. And um, station, one of the stations I listen to is an all-news station just to stay current, and they have traffic reports. I never listen to the traffic reports. It sounds like the adults in Charlie Brown, wah, 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 unless I'm going to Toronto. And then all of a sudden, information that wasn't important becomes relevant. Why? Because it's urgent. Because I'm going to Toronto. So you can look at the urgency of your mission. And you can look at the urgency of information saying, we have the responsibility to communicate to a city. We have the responsibility. You know, the kingdom of heaven is near. And when you look at the urgency, when you see the need in the families around you, when you see the potential of your church, when you realize that you've only begun to scratch the surface of your realized mission and you begin to realize that people actually go to heaven and people actually go to hell and somebody dies every day and eventually everybody spends eternity somewhere, I mean, that really changes your motivation even in a healthy way. So you can look at the urgency of your mission. Number two, then this is important and we're going to spend a bit of time on this, but transfer the tension that comes with the appetite for change from the leader to the community. One of the things I see is a leader who is burdened for change and a congregation that isn't. 
So how do you transfer the tension that you feel as a leader? Because otherwise, you're just going to get gray hair, wrinkles on your face, and, and, you know, quit and do something else with your life. It's just going to get untenable. So how do you transfer the tension from what you feel so that the community owns it in the healthiest of ways, not in a dysfunctional way, but in a healthy way? So I want to think through that. When you cast vision, here's one shortcut. I've talked about this a lot before, um, so I won't dwell on it in this forum. But when you cast vision, focus twice as much on why um, you do what you do, sorry, as on what and how. Um, Why unites and what and how divide. Now, let me explain that. If you think about the three questions that show up on a leadership table, it's always the same three. Why, what, and how? And what are we supposed to do? Okay, how are we going to do that? Like, who's going to pay for that? How are we going to budget for that? Why and what? The one that gets left is why. Why are we going to do this? Well, because we're trying to reach people. You see, the only question of the three, what, how, and why, that unites people is why. Because how and what are inherently divisive. If I say we're going to transition our musical style, I've got other people around the table saying, oh, no, we're not. If people say, well, how are you going to do that? Well, we're going to do that over a five-year window. People go like, well, can't we do it over a 10-year window? Can't we do it over a three-year window? Can't we change this? Can't we change that? Does it have to be electric? Can it be acoustic? Can it be this? What and how are always divisive? The only leadership question that unites people is the question of why. And why is, why is how you get agreement where there's disagreement? Why says this? Why says, well, we're really called not to make a church for us. Our our vision is to create a church unchurched people love to attend. So if we have music that unchurched people don't like to listen to, we're probably not going to create a church that unchurched people love to attend. Say to the seniors in your congregation, so it's great that you love it the way it is, but what about your kids? What about your grandkids? I mean, that's how we got started with the change um, 15 years ago is I just said, what about your grandkids? And they're like, well, they're not coming. I don't know why they don't like it. Why do you think they don't like it? <laughs> you know, and then you can step in the gap as a leader and say, do you think it might be the music? Do you think it might be the attitude? Do you think it might be a bit of judgmentalism? Do you think it might be the dress code? Do you think it might be the way we operate? Do you think it might be maybe our governance structure needs to change? I mean, decisions take forever around here. And if you focus on the why, you get agreement. Because people do love their kids. And only the most selfish people would say, I don't care about the rest of the world. They can go to hell, literally. Because that's what you say when you say this is a church for insiders. Because the church is the only organization that exists for the sake of its non-members. So see how why unites? I could stand up and say, well, we're going to change the music at Connexus overnight, and here's how we're going to do it. And pandemonium could break loose. But if I could say, if I stood up and said, well, I think we have the greatest opportunity that we've ever had to reach unchurched people. And I think this is why we're all in the same room, because you love Jesus and you want to invite your friends and that's what we're about. In order to accomplish that, we're probably going to make some changes to the way we do music. And here's why we're going to do that. You see, already the conversation is de-escalated. So why is your friend as a leader? And focus twice as much as why, on why as you do what and how. Now, a little bit more in the third shift of, of raising the level of discontent. Communicate the need for change in concentric circles. Now, I borrowed this from Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life, but um, he talks about sort of five concentric circles that I think are important. 
Number one, um, dialogue with the core. Dialogue with the core. So your core, I would consider to be, you know, for us, our staff. We have about a dozen staff. Our board. Um, some of our key volunteers. We have a group in North Point um, World called MTRs. And they're a room no bigger than this of key volunteers in the church that we call together four times a year to have a conversation. Those are the people I have dialogue with. Those are the people I'll have conversations with, or not just me, but our team um, will have conversations with. And that's where you kind of go back and forth. And, and especially we restrict that to staff or even now as we're growing senior staff and to the elders. Because if you have really strong senior leaders and you've also got really strong elders, Five people around a table, you get all the opinions um, almost in the room if you have not yes people around that table, but uh, great people around that table. So you dialogue with the core. Do the dialogue with your core. I think you can get input from committed people. Sometimes I'll sit down with a key donor or I'll sit down with somebody who, um, you know, just volunteers nonstop and I'll say, hey, we're thinking about this. Um, any input? Any thoughts? What are you looking at? This is, this is a model for introducing change, by the way, is sort of where we're going just to make it clear. Um, third is information to the congregation. And this is what I think kills a lot of churches is we try to have dialogue and we try to get input from hundreds or sometimes thousands of people. It does not work. It just doesn't work. And it's like, well, what will the congregation think? To some extent, it really doesn't matter what the congregation thinks. It matters how the leaders lead. So what we try to do is we try to give information to the congregation. I I always say there's no secrets. Like, what do you want to know? You want audited financial statements? Here they are. We're doing an audit right now. We do one every year so that every dollar is accounted for. You want to see how we spend money? There you go. Audited by a major independent accounting firm. Done. You want to know about our strategy? Great. Here's our strategy. You can get all the information you want, but... Um, We don't necessarily look for approval from the congregation. We just give them information. Vision to the crowd. Because the crowd is the crowd, and that's when you stand up on a Sunday morning and you just cast vision. And then finally, the way you communicate change is an invitation to the community. You just let them know, hey, this is a new day, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. So dialogue with the core, input from the committed, information to the congregation, and vision to the crowd, invitation to the community. Again, these notes will be on there. And And then this one's huge. Don't look for consensus. Consensus kills courage. Change never happens when everyone has a say. the, The problem, I mean, even with the number of people in the room today, if we tried to get agreement on where we were gonna go, if we were all part of this mythical, you know, a mythical church, if we tried to get agreement on where we were gonna go, we couldn't do it. There are too many opinions. You gotta have leaders. We could probably get agreement around this table or around that table, or any table, if it was just the five or six people gathered around the table. But to get agreement from everybody in the room is, is, is almost impossible. And the challenge is, consensus kills courage. And so when leaders go, well, I'm waiting for the change, I'm waiting for the musical changes, I'm waiting for the building approval, until we get consensus, you will wait until the second coming or until you die. Because you will never get consensus. You just won't. And the drive for consensus will kill your courage as a leader. You're a leader because you are willing to do things that other people won't do. You've been put in a leadership position because you've been asked to lead. And so if you're waiting for consensus, um, it can be challenging. I thought, yeah, good. I'm glad I got this. Number six, 
This is just a guideline. I know it's different in every denominational structure, but reserve decisions exclusively for the body that must make decisions. Here's what a lot of churches do. And I discovered this when I was part of a mainline church. It's like we had this habit of congregational meetings. And I thought, well, we're never going to get this amount of change done if we have to have congregational meetings about, you know, what color should the Kleenex box be? And, you know, like it's ridiculous. So I looked at what is the minimum statutory requirements we have for meetings, congregational meetings. And I went to them. That's like, well, we only have to meet on A, B, C, D. So we're ever only going to talk about A, B, C, D at congregational meetings. And we're not going to get input from the congregation on anything more than they have to do. Because congregational government, and I understand these are different denominations and I'm I'm not judging, I'm just saying, if you have a habit of going to 100 people for consensus on every decision, you will never make a decision. It's just not going to happen. So if you're in, what we did when we did Connexus was we just created a government structure that we thought would work. And we're trying to um, come up with a permanent facility solution. And there were five elders in my living room at Christmas. And we're sitting around the fireplace having a dialogue with two people from another building. And we were looking at it. It didn't work out in the end. But um, they were like, well, we would have to talk to our board, and then we'd have to talk to our congregation, then we'd have to talk to this, and then we have to talk to these people, and then we have to talk to this people. At this point, we're like, this thing's dead, isn't it? And I said after they left to our elders, you know what? We have five people in the room. We're a church that's, I don't know, 20 times their size. And I said, we have five people in the room. If you had felt that this was the right thing to do, we could have signed the papers and be done. And in the last five years... I've never had people in the first 10 say thank you for such great governance. I've actually had people randomly come up and said, I feel like we're well-led. Thank you for good governance. And all that is is people who take their responsibility seriously, people who have to make the decision or need to make the decision, make the decision, and don't get more people in the decision-making process than you need to. It will grind change to a halt. So we have this group called MTRs. Again, ministry team representatives, size about the the size of the people in this room. I tell them every year, just so you know, because the people who have a church background think this is where I get to vote. It's like, this is not a decision-making body. This is a communication body. And so we are really interested in your input. We are wide open to that. You can call us anytime, um, but you don't get to make decisions. That's reserved for the elders. And really, we're staff-led, so it's reserved to the staff. And if the staff do a really bad job, you get fired. That's how it works. So I would just say, if you really want to navigate change, make sure that you reserve decisions exclusively for the body that must make the decisions. Shift four, prepare for drama. This is the fun part. This is just a little pastoral advice from my pastor heart. Um, We are attracted to the drama in other people's lives, but we resist it in our own. I think that's just true. I mean, you pay money every day for drama, don't you? You do. You like watch TV, you subscribe to cable or Netflix or something like that, or you're watching online, and you're fascinated by the drama on TV, and you're fascinated kind of in a sometimes not healthy way by the drama in other people's lives. Do you know what she said? Do you know what he did? Did you see that? Like, ooh, we're attracted to it, but we resist it in our own. I mean, if somebody made a movie of your life, would anybody go pay money to see it? Man gets up. Man has breakfast. Man brushes teeth goes to work, sit behind computer, cuts the grass, goes to bed, does it again the next day. Not much of a plot line there, is it? 
You know, we resist drama. We want everything to be super comfortable in our lives, but we pay money. There's something that we're attracted to in other people's lives. This is what I believe. Most Christians would forbid their children to participate in the Bible stories they read to them. It's like, you can't go hang out with those lions and don't you dare jump in. You can't do that. What do you mean you're going to Babylon and you're going to eat only vegetables and how does that work? I mean, you think about it. We read incredible stories to our children and then we say, but we're not going to live that way. We just want everything to be safe. Think about this, um, prayer meetings, letter B. Most Christians pray for a changed outcome and then pray against any drama necessary to bring the outcome about. And Lord, keep us safe. And Lord, may nobody disagree with each other. And please heal my hangnail. And you know, like, we just pray against drama on a regular basis. Well, why? So you're going to have to look a few lions down the throat. So you're going to have to step out on faith. Luke 9, 51 or 52. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And it says Jesus steeled himself for the journey. Why? Because he knew the disciples were going to say, forget the cross. He knew how tough that journey would be. And he just resolved that he was going to face it. I mean, there is no story without drama, right? Now you want to have the right kind of drama in your church, the wrong kind of drama, gossip, backbiting, fighting, you know, that's the wrong kind of drama in your church. But Um, You really have to be prepared for it. To lead change effectively introduces drama into the church that's necessary to bring the change about. Not unnecessary drama, but there will be drama that's necessary to bring the change about. So to lead change effectively introduces the drama necessary for the outcomes to change. That's what really the bottom line is, is you only want the amount of drama necessary for the outcomes to change, but there is going to be drama. People are going to get mad. People are going to leave. Some of them will come back. Some of them won't. It's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. You have to be prepared for that as a leader, and that's tough. And this one's fun. Never arrive. Never arrive. Focus on where you're going, not when you'll arrive. Because that's kind of the mission of the church. We've been at this 2,000 years. Has the mission of the kingdom of God been exhausted on earth? No. Will it be in our lifetime? No. So we're going to kind of never arrive, right, as church leaders. We're just going to get there. We're just going to keep moving. We're just going to keep going. So you got to be prepared because people want to know, okay, when is this change going to be over? And the answer is never. Never. It's never going to be over because when you stop changing, you die. So focus on where you're going, not when you'll arrive. A value experimentation. I'm beginning to embrace this more and more. But because I kept thinking as a younger leader in my 30s, like, you know what? We're just going to make all these changes and we'll be done. Now that I'm well into my 40s, I'm like, I would love all these changes and all this drama to be done. <laughs> but it's not. And, and so you've just got to be okay with that. And you've got to value experimentation. And I think, Brian Dodd and I were talking about this real briefly at the beginning. It'll be a great conversation. I don't know where the church is going in the next 10 years, but I think it's going to be a lot of experimentation to figure that out. And I don't think it can be, well, here's the download and, oh, I learned everything I needed to know. We know what church, we know what has brought us from where we were 30 years ago to where we are today, but I don't think anybody's got a clear sense of what's going to take us into the next 30 years. And that's okay. Let's, let's just experiment. Let's try some things. And if you share it as an experiment with your church, then if it fails, everybody goes, well, at least we tried. 
If you're like, this is the silver bullet that's going to fix all our problems, you set yourself up for failure. So value experimentation. Embrace failure as a step toward progress. That's hard for a guy like me because I'm, I'm like, I'm tough on myself. I'm tough on others. But like embrace failure as a step toward progress. So you really want to make sure that it's okay if you fail. Hey, you know what? That didn't work out. That experimental service that, you know, my goodness. Do you know how many products fail before one gets to market? I mean, Edison, come on. He tried 10,000 times and then created a light bulb. And he said, every time I haven't failed 9,999 times, I just now know how not to make a light bulb. Yet another way, not to make a light bulb. Then he made one. So embrace failure as a step toward progress and celebrate the progress you make. Celebrate the progress. It's like you get a new church family, you get a baptism out of this, celebrate like crazy. Somebody comes up with a great idea, celebrate like crazy. And some of us, I mean, I'm wired. uh, One of the guys I work really closely with, Jeff, we're wired in a similar way um, on our staff. And like, we don't celebrate well. We're just like, okay, well, that's good. Sunday's coming. Let's go. (laughs) You know, and and that's sort of a leader wiring that isn't always good, but we got to have people on our team that help us celebrate. So As we wrap up, a lasting appetite for change develops naturally in people and organizations who truly embrace their mission. I think what happens if you start to navigate some of the stuff we've talked about today is you don't set out to change people's appetites. They just change because you change the culture, right? It's like taking your five-year-old who only eats three foods, and by the time they're 20, as long as they're not in Paris with me, um, they, they start to really enjoy other foods, And the more other exotic foods you eat, the more you kind of enjoy trying new things and trying different things. And I think the same is true in the church. It's not that you can change somebody's appetite. But if you embrace some of the values and the strategies that we talked about today, over time, people's attitudes will change. And when you really pursue the mission, and it's not a mission of self-preservation, it's not a mission of what's in it for me, it's a mission that's truly about the kingdom of God, I think inherently that leads you to a place of change. Well, change is something that all of us in ministry have to deal with, and it's something that we're dealing with today as part of the Think Orange podcast. But you know, Craig Jatella once said that the best thing we can do is just take it one step at a time. When it comes to leading your teams through change, your goal is to do it in a healthy way and take one step at a time. And that's what we're trying to do today. But before we go, I want to remind you again of the Craig Jatella Memorial Fund. You can find out all about it by visiting www.whowillyouempower.com. That's whowillyouempower.com. Craig was a big advocate for family ministry and next generation leaders. And in that vein, we hope that this has been an encouraging and hope-filled podcast for you. We are praying for you guys, and we will see you back here next time. Thanks so much for listening. And you know, this week, when you think next generation, think Craig Jatella.